this week I was watching a silly video on Facebook. I don't even remember what it was about. Some kind of magic trick or some funny mime or something or other. And I noticed something weird. There was a comment under it that popped up on my phone. It said, Acts 2, 36 to 42. And I thought, that's very strange. And I did something that I rarely do and something I'll probably never do again. I clicked on the comment to see what it was about. And it was just a person who thought they would respond to a silly video uh, by encouraging everybody to repent, turn away from their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus. And then, wouldn't you know it, there are a whole heap of replies and comments and arguments and insults back and forth between this person and a whole host of other people. Dozens of people chiming in. I guess because the video was popular and this comment had dozens of replies, lots of people decided to join in. It was weird. I'm not sure that anyone was convinced to repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus as their saviour, as a result of that post. And I'm pretty sure a whole bunch of people would have just been reinforced in their positions. The Christians are a bunch of no-fun religious twerps who should be ignored and mocked. You know, in the old days, it took weeks and days and months to have theological arguments. It would take years for things to get printed and distributed and for people to read them and digest them and think about them and then write their own response. But nowadays, theological conversations can be a part of a few seconds to compose and then press publish or post. Social media is great because it makes place for all of our voices. However, it also seems to elevate every theological argument to the same level of importance. And then two things start to happen. First of all, with so many voices in play, the conversations and arguments about God and life can eventually sound like static. Too much noise that stops us from hearing what really is important. And secondly, the internet, believe it or not, is not a good place to have a constructive conversation. The language is often short, and terse, and lacks nuance. It results in combative language that sets up the conversation in either-or categories. Either you agree with me, or you are an evil idiot. And that's what it comes down to on the internet. So how do we sort out these voices? How do we weigh what's important to discuss and what needs to be set aside? How do we have conversations with other people without viewing them as the enemy? There's a great book that I've been reading called Benefit of the Doubt by Pastor Greg Boyd. And in this book, he offers a model for how we can think about the various theological issues and consider the importance of various debates. This model also helps us have conversations without having to use either-or language. So this morning I'd like to share with you Greg's model for talking about theology, for talking about faith, for talking about God. Some people say, I'm not a theologian. I've often heard that said of people, I'm not a theologian. The word theologian just means someone who talks about God. So if you're not a theologian, you're not a very good Christian. Okay? 
all of us are theologians. In fact, people who aren't Christians are theologians. They talk about God, it seems, more than anyone else. Theology just means to talk about God. How can we talk about God in a constructive way? This model consists of a series of circles radiating out from the centre. In the centre is a single idea, a single picture, a single statement about God. Who is God? What is he like? We will label this circle the deity box, the deity circle. And deity is just another word for God. We'll come back to this circle in a moment. But this is the most important. All the other circles radiate and come out from it. And their closeness to the centre reflects their importance. You know, Christians are called to belong to the body, the body that we call the church. And so at the core of our faith are those things that all Christians hold in common, the historic and orthodox belief of the church. And we should probably stop and talk about the word orthodox as well, because orthodox is a word we often hear but don't really know what it means. Orthodox comes from the Greek. The word ortho means right or correct, and the word dox means worship. So orthodox just means right or correct worship. So if something is orthodox, it means that this is the correct way of worshipping God, the right way to believe, the true faith. And so this second ring holds those beliefs that have traditionally been understood to constitute orthodox Christianity. And these are sometimes referred to as dogma. That's another word that probably should be explained, but dogma is just an old word meaning the things we know are true. The dogma of the church, they're reflected in our foundational creeds. For example, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. In the first centuries of the church, Christians from all over the world got together and talked about what they held in common and what they believed and came up with these creeds. And centuries later, we find that they still tell us the truth. And so in the dogma circle, we put those things that all Christians believe. The belief that God is a trinity, that Christ is fully God and fully human. The belief that the world is created and governed by God. These are examples of dogmas that compose this inner ring. The next circle are the beliefs that Orthodox Christians have always proclaimed, but about which there's been some disagreement. These are the different doctrines that distinguish various denominations. And most of them come from different ways of interpreting the dogmas found in the ring just outside the core circle. For example, Orthodox Christians have always believed that God governs the world. But at least from the 4th century onwards, we have had disagreements about how he does that. There are Christians whose doctrine says that God controls everything and that every event in history is God's idea. While others believe, rightly, that God has given a degree of free will to humans and to angels. And to distinguish this circle from the inner circle, we label the beliefs that compose this circle doctrine. Christian denominations are generally distinct because of their doctrine. They all hold the dogma in common. If they don't, they're not really Christian denominations. They're instead what we might call sects 
or cults. But Christians who agree on dogma can and do disagree on doctrine without coming to the point of calling each other heretics and denying that they're a part of the church at all. Well, usually. The outermost circle is for opinions, debatable opinions. And this is where all kinds of things that Christians think can be placed. Beliefs that individual Christians have occasionally held, but have never gained widespread support, that have rarely been adopted by a recognized church body. And while the circle of doctrine comprises the different ways that Christians have interpreted dogma, this outside circle usually comprises different ways of interpreting particular doctrines. So, let's think of some examples of this. And there are many, many, many things that Christians think that could fit in this outside circle. For example, some Christians believe in the gap theory, which is the idea that there's a big gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And they believe this as a way of reconciling the account and creation with the theory of evolution. Some people believe that. It isn't dogma, it isn't doctrine, it's a debatable opinion. Another debatable opinion could be the open view of the future that holds that the future is not fully settled. Under this way of thinking, God sees all the possible futures that exist, all the things that could happen depending on the choices of his people, and then he acts with his sovereign power to guide and shape the ultimate outcome. This is not a doctrine. It certainly is not dogma, but it is a way to see the world. And arguments in its favor can be found in the scriptures. There is, of course, plenty of room for disagreement over the details of this model, these circles surrounding the center. And the church does uniformly agree on what constitutes dogma. Those beliefs are in our ancient creeds. One person may regard a belief to be opinion, and another person may think of it as a doctrine. And that's where arguments happen, is where somebody says, I've got this idea and I know it's true. And everybody else in the church goes, that's a bit weird. I'm not sure we agree with that. The point of this model is the fact that not all beliefs are equally important, while making it clear that everything revolves around is oriented towards the center that is our picture of God. You know, it's entirely possible to have a solid grasp of dogma, to have correct doctrine, and to have entirely thought out and reasonable opinions and still have a wrong picture of God. So my question to you this morning is, what is at the center of your faith? What is at the heart of your picture of God? What does he look like to you? Some people have an angry God at the center, sitting on clouds and throwing out lightning bolts like Zeus or Jupiter or Allah. Some people see God as indifferent, far away, the absent creator. He made the universe and then he just seems to have wandered off. Some people see God as turbulent, as bossy, as easily annoyed, as fickle. But when we read the scriptures and when we examine the ancient creeds and look at the heart of our faith, 
What do we see? Well, we see Jesus Christ, the one who shows us what God is really like. And what do we see Jesus doing? We see him dying on a cross to show us God's love. We are coming back this year to our Corinthians series. And we have this verse that we read each week when we're studying Corinthians. Would you read it with me? For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul says at the center of his faith, at the center of what he believes, the center of what the scriptures proclaim is this Jesus Christ, this one who shows us what God is like and he's hanging on a cross. This model shows beliefs in the forms of circles that are oriented around this center. And the center must be Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly reveals to us the love that God eternally is, who perfectly embodies the love that God has for us, and who perfectly models the love we are to have towards others, and who is the means by which we enter into a loving covenantal, faith-based relationship with God. This all-important, this life-giving, this covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Are there any questions this morning about anything I've spoken about today? For those who are visiting with us, I'd like to stop and see if there are questions in case I've said something that confuses or upsets you. Anyone want to put their hand up and be brave today? No? My email address is there. My phone number's there. I'd love to discuss these things with you. If you've got something that you think is vital and essential to the faith and you want to know if other Christians agree with you, I'd love to have that conversation. I'd love to discuss these things with you. You know, this model of faith is meant to be helpful to us, to help us, and has a number of advantages. Come on, clicker, don't give up on me now. Oh, it doesn't like me at all. Ah, now it's gone too far. This model of faith is meant to be helpful, more helpful than this clicker. It has a number of advantages because among other things, it allows people to adjust their beliefs to accommodate their ongoing intellectual and spiritual development and at the same time ground them in a life-giving relationship with Christ. What I say to people is this. Everything I know, I learned at the feet of my Auntie Margaret, who was my Sunday school teacher when I was three and four and five years old. Everything I know about Jesus, I learned from my Auntie Margaret. And then I went to university and got a whole bunch of degrees and learned a whole bunch of stuff and read a whole bunch of books and learned about dogma and doctrine and all this debatable opinion. But when it comes back to it, my faith is that faith that was handed to me as a little child. But this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. I've been singing that since I was two years old. This model is to help us and encourage us to learn and debate and discuss things in a non-defensive and objective way. It empowers Christians to discuss and debate issues with other Christians and even with non-Christians in a loving and non-defensive and rational way. Because while we're discussing debatable opinion, 
That can come and go. And while we're discussing doctrine, and I hold my doctrine very seriously, and there's a reason I'm a Wesleyan Methodist and not part of any other church, well, some other churches, because that doctrine to me, this is how the Bible makes sense to me. And I'll argue that till I'm blue in the face. If there are any Calvinists here, I'd love to set you straight. That's my job. Argue with Calvinists. It's not really. But our doctrines distinguish us, but we're still Christian. Or are we talking about those essentials of the faith, the things that all Christians hold in common? Those things we need to hold really firm to. Doctrine we can argue back and forth. And debatable opinion we can go, well, who matters? In a thousand years when we all stand before Jesus, it won't matter one way or the other. But at the heart, at the heart, it's got to be about Jesus. It's got to reflect well on him and it's got to demonstrate him. You know, Christians ought to learn how to discuss their faith without making every issue a hill worth dying on. We need to be able to engage with our culture and our community and do so effectively, usefully, carefully, lovingly, instead of just posting Bible verses under silly videos on Facebook and then getting into stupid arguments that do not reflect well on our Lord and Saviour. Jesus wants to invite people into his kingdom, not push them away. And we are called to be good ambassadors, to be good representatives, to be good Christians. The song I've chosen for us to reflect this morning is the same one we sang last week. Move, Holy Spirit, move in my life and make me like Christ. My prayer this morning is, as you think about your own faith and what you believe, and you think about what your picture is in the centre there. That's what you're growing towards. That's what you want to become. If you've got an angry, vicious, mean God sitting in the centre of your circles, well, you're going to become that way too. Let's put Jesus in his rightful place, in the centre of our faith, and let's grow to become like him. Would you join me as we sing? Move, Holy Spirit, move in my life. Move, Holy Spirit, make me like Christ. Move, move, move in my life. Make me like Christ. Move, Holy Spirit, move in my life. Move, Holy Spirit, make me like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus and all he is and all that he shows us about you. Heavenly Father, let help us to put him at the centre of all things, the centre of our lives, the centre of our faith. Father God, we thank you for faithful men and women who through the years have passed down the creeds and the scriptures and different things that teach us about Jesus. Father God, we thank you for 
clever and intelligent people who've argued backwards and forwards and studied the scriptures, the great scholars and debaters of the age who've helped us establish good, solid doctrine. But Father God, we even thank you for these debatable ideas, the fact that we're allowed to think and have different opinions about stuff. Father God, we look forward to the day when all those debates will be silenced and we will know the full truth in your presence. But until then, Father God, I pray that you would help us to know the difference between dogma, doctrine, and debatable opinion. And most of all, Father God, that you would help us to see Jesus at the center of our faith, as the one who shows us what you are truly like, the one who demonstrates your love for us. Father God, help us to build our lives around the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is and has done. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. I invite the worship group to come. We've got three minutes to finish our final song, but by the same token, most of you walked in a good five or ten minutes late, so I'm well within my rights to go an extra five or ten minutes. Do you agree? Yes, you think that's okay? And you're going to wait to want to sing this last song anyway as well. Can we just go back to the slide? Sorry, you cut me off just 10 seconds too early. I want to remind you of who we are and what we're about. We want people to meet Jesus, and so we want to grow to be like Jesus. We want to share Jesus' love. We want to share his message. We want to reach out into our community. I want to encourage you to think in a few weeks' time, a few months' time, after Easter, we are starting our Alpha course, where we will be inviting uh, people to come and join us to hear the stories of Jesus. I want to encourage each and every one of you to think of who you can invite to our Alpha course. If you don't have someone you can invite, you've got three months to make a friend and bring them along. I encourage you to be praying and thinking about that. But thinking about how you can share your faith in a sensitive and clever and helpful way. All of this I pray in the name of Jesus and amen. And we're going to sing victory in Jesus. Thank you to our worship group. Haven't they done well this morning? Haven't we had great worship? Our soloists, our singers, our musicians, we've had a great morning. God bless you.